is, uh, this online education is, is growing rapidly. I, I, I want to say this because I want you all to understand this. The premier opportunity and the premier experience you, you can have and ever will have is to be on campus. This is the best of the best because all the resources of the campus and all the relationships of the campus are here uh, to draw on and to tap into. But there are people who can't come here and uh, they need help. Maybe they're at a secular university studying science, but they need to take a science course here that gives them an accurate biblical creationist view. Um, they may be in another part of the world. They, they may be involved in a job with a family. Whatever it is, we have to be able to export the truth, and we don't want to put any limits on that at all. We say this at the seminary as well. Uh, if, if you want to have the best possible education, you need to be at the master's seminary rubbing shoulders with the faculty, interacting with the student body. But there are people all over the planet who can't do that. So uh, even down there, we are uh, exporting the training. I think as I speak to you now, just starting this fall, um, in some distance fashion, there are 191 students being trained for pastoral ministry in the Spanish language. Uh, that's an exciting reality. There will be residence uh, programs in that. There, there are some already. But the opportunity to, to meet the demand, and not only in that language, but many languages, is requiring us to take advantage of this wonderful opportunity. We're really glad to have Mitch with us. I said on Monday that um, a Bible verse has really been at the kind of the head of favorite verses for me through the years, and it's 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Let me read it to you again. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That sums up sanctification. Sanctification is the Spirit of God transforming us into the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next, to the next, to the next, as we gaze in the glass of Scripture and see His glory revealed. And I said last time, no matter where you look, Christ is all-glorious. No matter where you see Him in Scripture, His glory radiates. And uh, last time we looked at a most unlikely place to see His glory, and that was His glory in the garden. We also noted that that was his view of the cross. You have in the uh, epistles of the New Testament the apostles' view of the cross. And it's an accurate one, and it's a Holy Spirit-inspired one. But in the garden, as we saw on Monday, you have Christ's view of the cross. You have him looking at his cross, knowing exactly what is coming. And we saw in the glory of the garden how he viewed the cross as he looked at it in the hours before his crucifixion. He saw his death for what it was. It was the wrath and the anger and the fury and the vengeance and the judgment of God against all the sins of all believers through all of human history poured out fully on him until justice was completely 
satisfied. He propitiated God. He accurately understood the experience for what it was. He understood the theology of the cross before he got there. He knew it was God's fury on his back. Still, it was a garden of glory. We saw holy sorrow. We saw holy faith. We saw holy strength. And, and then an angel appeared and we saw holy worship. It all put his glory on display. That's a view of the cross that maybe you've never had before. Now the cross was subsequently followed by the next monumental expression of glory. And that was not the resurrection. The resurrection was the penultimate expression of glory. The ultimate expression of glory is in the first chapter of Acts. So open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Here we have the Father's view of the cross. We see Christ's view of the cross before the cross in the garden. We see the Father's view of the cross after the cross and it's all laid out here chapter 1 verse 9 after he had said these things he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That is a word from the Father through the messengers, the holy angels. This is the ascension. We looked at the cross from the vantage point of the garden, and now we look at the resurrection from the vantage point of the ascension. And it is the ascension that is the ultimate divine commentary on the cross. Turn, if you will, also to Philippians 2. Just want to lay some scripture in your mind. Philippians 2 where it tells us concerning Christ Jesus, verse 5, that though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God's thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, talking about the incarnation, the kenosis, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then this, there's no mention of the resurrection here. This is perhaps the most definitive passage in the New Testament on the Incarnation. God becoming man. The Son becoming human. This is that definitive passage and there is no mention of the resurrection. There is, however, this. 
For this reason also, because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Without saying anything about the resurrection, we go immediately to the coronation. God highly exalted him, took him back into heaven, and gave him a name which is above every name, and that name is the name Lord. The writer of Hebrews also sees this same reality. Hebrews 1. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, start in first verse, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. There again is the incarnation, fully God, and upholds all things by the word of His power, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, you have the cross and not the resurrection. You go from the cross to the coronation, from the cross through the ascension to Christ taking his seat on the right hand of the Father, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And that more excellent name than they is Lord. Again, no mention of the resurrection. The resurrection is not the ultimate feature in the life of Christ. It is the penultimate feature. The ultimate feature is the ascension and coronation of Christ. This is the Father's commentary on His work. Because glory is the ultimate goal. There was a measure of glory in the resurrection, obviously. He had a glorified body. And there are characteristics of that body that were different after the resurrection than before. But that glory was still, to some degree, earthly, even post-resurrection, as He revealed Himself to His disciples. The real goal of the resurrection was the coronation of Christ as a result of His ascension. The ascension of our Lord is another one of the most neglected events. We talk about the death of Christ. We talk about the resurrection of Christ. We don't talk about the garden, which is so loaded with insight. We don't talk about the ascension, which is the reason, the ultimate reason why all the other things happen, that He might be exalted by His Father. This has immense significance. It is impossible to think of the crucifixion and the resurrection without the ascension. I don't know if you realize it. Probably if you think back, I'll help you a little bit with that. But our Lord often referred to the ascension. He often did. We can go back, for example, to John 6, 6, 62. What then? 
he says, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. In the seventh chapter of John, and verse 33, therefore Jesus said, for a little while I am with you, then I go to Him who sent me. And then again in the 14th chapter, and uh, verse 28, you have heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. The joy that he had before the cross was not the resurrection. It was the reunion with the Father. The reunion with the Father. Again, in the 16th chapter of John, he says in verse 5, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And in verse 17, A little while and you will not see me. And then in John 20 and verse 17, Jesus said, Stop clinging to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. The ascension was on his mind. In that great high priestly prayer in John 17, it says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour of what? This is before the cross. The hour of death? No. The hour of resurrection? No. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you've given me to do now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He was looking past the cross, past the resurrection, to the coronation. That was the joy that was set before him, that allowed him to survive the garden, endure the cross. Rarely do we consider this an incredibly important event. One of the things that has disturbed me through the years, recent years, is the indifference to eschatology. I have uh, had a lot of friends who are uh, amillennial. Amillennial means we punt on the fourth down. We really we give up the ball. Um, And that seems to be somewhat of a noble thing to do for many people in the Reformed tradition because there are so many options uh, that maybe it's just best to avoid that as if the end of the book didn't matter when the end of the book is the point of the book. So one of the things I do in the Doctor of Ministries program at the Master Seminary And we get guys in that program from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of seminaries and all kinds of eschatologies is to ask them this, is it right to teach the Old Testament? Of course, that's the anticipation of Christ. Is it right to teach the Gospels? Of course, that's the incarnation of Christ. Is it right to teach the book of Acts? Of course, that's the proclamation of Christ. Is it right to teach the 
the epistles? Of course, that's the explanation of Christ. Is it right to teach the book of Revelation, which is the glorification of Christ? If you're going to leave something out, that's probably not it. And if you're going to say, I'm content not to know, that is a sinful failure to study, to be approved of God, a workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's not that difficult. You can't leave the coronation out. A number of years ago, I flew 35 hours in a row, and I ended up in Almaty, Kazakhstan. It was 6 o'clock in the morning when this rickety plane landed, and uh, there were about 1,700 uh, Russian-speaking Central Asian Republic pastors gathered in the largest place that they could possibly find. And it was a week-long conference in which I was supposed to teach everything about the church, everything about the church. Um, it was a challenging thing because I was teaching about five or six hours a day with a translator day after day after day. Finally, about three days in, the leaders came together and through an interpreter, they said to me, when are you going to get to the good part? <sighs> when are you going to get to the good part? You mean, have I been missing the good part? Um, they said, no, we, we mean, we mean, we, we mean what happens when Christ comes? What does he have planned for us? These are deprived people. Um, to feed these 1,700 for a week, they had, it was good that it rained. They had these great big pots outside the church, um, the kind you boil a missionary in, you know, those really big ones. And they, that rained all week, so they just kept throwing potatoes in, and the rain provided the soup, and everybody was eating potato rainwater, <laughs> boiled. Uh, they had very little food, but they, they had very little of anything, and they said, we want to get to the good part. What's the good part? The good part is when Jesus comes for his church and when he establishes his kingdom on earth. So I said, well, I don't know what you believe. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know whether you're going to like what I say, but I'm just going to take you through the book of Revelation. And so they got excited. I did that one entire day. And at the end of the day, they said, Amen, brother. We believe exactly what you believe. Wow. None of them had ever been to a seminary, but they had a Bible. If you have a wrong eschatology, you didn't get it here. You got it somewhere else. The Father glorifying the Son is everything. Is everything. But it's not just for Him. Because Jesus said in John 16, 7, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He has been with you. He will be in you. Do you know this confession? might have been even an early hymn in uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And this speaks of Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh 
was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Doesn't say anything about the cross. Doesn't say anything about the resurrection. Revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. That's a, that's a doctrinal confession that ends in the ascension, which is the Father's commentary on the cross. As He receives His Son, seats Him at His right hand, declares Him ruler over everything, and gives Him a name above every name, the name Lord, and requires every knee to bow, every conscious person in the universe to confess Him as Lord. In that we see the Father's view of His work on the cross. Let me break it down for you a little bit. What is the significance of the ascension? Let me give you a little list, okay? In the time that we have. First of all, the Father exalting Christ to His right hand demonstrated that the Father acknowledged the completion of the Lord's earthly work. And when He was here, John 4.34 says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and finish His work. John 4.34, and finish His work. And as He's hanging on the cross, you know it in John 19.30, He says, Te telestai. It is finished. And that's why in John 17.4, as He anticipated that, He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave Me to do. Now glorify Me together with Yourself, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world began. When He had accomplished redemption perfectly, he, it says in Hebrews 9.12, I love this, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He entered the holy place. You know what the holy place is? The holy of holies. The heavenly holy of holies. Not the symbolic one in the tabernacle and the temple. He entered the real holy place, the throne room of eternal God, and sat down, having obtained eternal redemption. He finished his work. Listen to Hebrews 10, 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He finished the work. He perfected it. So the ascension is the Father signaling that the work of Christ which he sent him to do, he finished perfectly. That's the Father's commentary on the cross. Some people think when he said, it is finished, he was saying, I am finished. No. The work the Father had given him to do was finished. Secondly, 
The Father in the ascension signaled the end of our Lord's limitations. The end of our Lord's limitations. He took on the form of a man, took on the form of a slave, was confined in a human body, restricted the independent use of his attributes, could have called legions of angels to his aid, didn't do that, chose not even to exercise his omniscience by saying not even the Son of Man knows the time of the establishment of the kingdom. He limited the use of his powers. Even after the resurrection, he was still limited in some ways. But upon his return to heaven, he entered into a glory, listen, that was more than his pre-incarnate glory. Maybe you never thought about that. He says, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began. But he left as pure spirit. He left heaven as pure spirit. He left as lagos, the living word. He left as pure deity, but he came back as pure deity and pure humanity. And he took on not only the glory he had before the world began, but he took on a new glory as the God-man. No longer distinctly Lagos, distinctly spirit. And not man distinctly, but the perfect God-man, Theanthropos. He was restored to limitless intimacy with God as the perfect God-man. And he remains so forever. I love the scene in the book of Revelation. Who would ever want to ignore this or be confused about what it means? In chapter 5, John is weeping because nobody shows up to open the book, which is the title deed to the earth. Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? To open the book and unfold the recovery of the earth from the usurper Satan. Who has a right to the title deed? Who has the power to overthrow Satan? Nobody shows up. And one of the elders says, verse 5, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He will take back the universe from Satan. And I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Wow. In John's vision, he sees the lamb of God with wounds. You remember he said to Thomas after his resurrection, check the wounds. Here the wounds are even in heaven. John's heavenly vision is a vision of a slain lamb. The signs, the scars of his suffering are eternally his. And we'll see them when we get to glory. So the Father, exalting him to heaven, ends his time of condescension, 
ends his time of limitation. And he goes back all that he was and even more. Thirdly, the Father taking him to glory and seating him at his right hand establishes eternal and universal worship of him. It establishes universal and eternal worship of him. He is Lord and all will bow. When he brought Christ from the dead, Ephesians 1.20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, it was far above far above, not just above, far above, who pair, far above, all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That's all persons, all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, all lordships. He's above them all. Every name that is named means persons, be they angelic or human. He's above them all in this age and in the age to come. And then he put all things as well as all persons in subjection under his feet. And then he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And when you look into heaven in that same fifth chapter of Revelation, this is what you read in the next verse. The 24 elders representing the redeemed bow down before the Lamb, and they sing a song, a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they'll reign on the earth. And further, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the elders and the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and fell down and worshipped. When the Father took Jesus back into heaven, it was so that he could be everlastingly worshipped. He is exalted as Lord and King and ruler over all. The worthy one is now receiving in heaven the glory and the worship and the adoration and the reverence and the praise and the thanks that he deserves. Sadly, he doesn't even get that in many churches here. There's another aspect here. The ascension marked the beginning of the Lord's preparation for believers' heavenly home. Marked the beginning of the Lord's preparation for believers' heavenly home. Look at John 14. Jesus telling his disciples, I'm going away. And uh, they don't like it. Peter boldly says, I'll go anywhere with you. I won't deny you. I'll die for you. 
which of course I think was well-intentioned, but didn't ever materialize. But in verse 14, the fear of the disciples losing him causes them to be deeply distressed. So he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, not mansions. It doesn't say in my Father's house are many mansions. You can't have many mansions in one house. It's one house with many rooms. They're not mansions. There's not going to be streets and different communities and somebody's going to live four miles down and eight miles to the left. We're all going to live in a room in the Father's house. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I mean, just think of that. Right now, as we speak, with all our frailties and all our weaknesses, but because we belong to him, he is preparing a room for us in the Father's house. He's constantly preparing it. You get a glimpse of it toward the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, as you see the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth coming down out of heaven, a bridal city, pretty amazing place, gates that are one single pearl each, transparent gold streets in a cubed city, no, no material light because the glory of the Lord is the light that radiates from the center of the New Jerusalem and is refracted through all the jewels and gold of the capital city to the endless new heavens and new earth. You can't consider these things without also noting that something really important happened at the ascension that involves us. And what exactly is that? It marked the passing of the work of evangelism from the Lord to us. Look at Acts chapter 1. The Father is now giving to us the responsibility. First account I composed, Theophilus, Luke writes, about all that Jesus, I love this, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. He could only do what he did and teach what he taught until he was taken up to heaven. Then the baton was passed to us. And in verse 8 of chapter 1 in Acts, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Literally, the ascension was the Father passing the responsibility of evangelism in the world on to us, and in order 
To make that a reality, sending the Holy Spirit who came on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. At the end of Luke's gospel, if we back up, volume 1 of Luke's writings is the gospel of Luke, volume 2 is the book of Acts. But if you go back to Luke um, chapter 24, verse 44, and just read the, the final account that Luke gives, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. You remember he, he showed them the things concerning himself in the Old Testament, as it says earlier in that chapter. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Wow. I've always wished I could be in that kind of situation where the whole Old Testament was taught by Christ. And he said, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead and the, uh, the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, that's the Holy Spirit, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And then He led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up His hands, blessed them. While He was blessing them, He parted from them, and here's the ascension, He was carried up into heaven and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple praising God. They stayed there until the coming of the Holy Spirit. The ascension of Jesus Christ was so critical because the baton was passed from the Lord to his followers. The signal also was given at the ascension, if you're keeping a list, the next point, that the work of ministry was given to gifted men. The work of ministry for the believers, evangelism was given to the followers of Christ, but the work of ministry was given to gifted men. Listen to this. Verse 10 of Ephesians 4 says, He ascended far above all the heavens. That's the ascension. The next verse. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Wow. The work of building people into Christ-likeness was handed over to apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that together the body of Christ could grow into mature Christ-likeness. The responsibility of evangelism was passed at the ascension. The responsibility of discipleship, work of ministry among the believers was passed at the ascension. Just a couple of more to think about. It marked the defeat of Satan. The ascension marked the defeat of Satan. It was over. And back to Ephesians 1. When he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in heavenly places, he was seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And that would include Satan. Satan. 
Genesis 3.15 describes it as crushing Satan's head. Hebrews 2.14 says that through his death, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Satan was crushed when Christ triumphed. There are so many verses that deal with Satan. I don't want to give you too many just in the few moments we have, but back to Hebrews 10. I read this earlier. Christ sat down at the right hand of God and His enemies were made a footstool for His feet. Paul says Satan is placed under His feet and even the feet of those that belong to Him. It's an astonishing thing when you think about the ascension. Two more things to say. The ascension marked This is so critical. The beginning of our Lord's high priestly work. The ascension marked the beginning of our Lord's high priestly work. You say, well, what is that high priestly work? Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's the ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our high priest sits at the right hand of the Father in in the throne room of heaven, interceding for us, interceding for us, pleading on our behalf. He is able, therefore, Hebrews 7.25, to save forever those who draw near to God since He always lives to make intercession for them. One of the most important verses in the Bible. Why are you secure in your salvation? Why? Because you have the strength to hold on? No. You are secure because He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He keeps you saved by His constant prayers. Some people think that salvation and security are somehow a fiat Statement by God, and once it's said, God can go off and do something else. No. The Lord Jesus Christ unceasingly prays before the Father for us, and because of His unceasing prayer, He secures us to eternal glory. It's it's just amazingly personal, amazingly personal. We have a high priest who's entered into the holy place to intercede for us to be sure that he gets us to glory. He said in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I'll lose none of them but raise them all to glory. 
I'm going to make it to glory, you're going to make it to glory, not because there's something in us that can hang on, but because He holds us and never lets us go. One final truth. The ascension guarantees the second coming. It guarantees His return. That's where we started, back to Acts 1, 8 through 11. Verse 11, This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched Him go. The ascension is just massive. In the ascension, the Father exalts our Lord. Through the ascension, He brings His humiliation to an end. Through the ascension, He sends the Holy Spirit. Through the ascension, He begins to prepare our eternal room in the Father's house. Through the ascension, He is crowned the sovereign over all persons. Through the ascension, He takes the headship over the church. Through the ascension, He defeats Satan. Through the ascension, He passes evangelism and ministry to His followers. Through the ascension, He begins the blessed work of intercession. And through the ascension, He leaves the promise that He will come back again. For all these reasons, the Father took Him to glory. That's how satisfied the Father was with the cross. Lord, we again are so privileged to have Your truth in such profound clarity and richness. Give us clear vision of the glory of Christ. May we see Him as You, the Father, see Him. High, lifted up, exalted, to be loved and adored forever. And we long for that time when we will join the hosts around the throne in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth, to bask in the shining glory of our blessed Lord and to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. May our clear understanding of Him be useful to the Holy Spirit in shaping us into His image. We pray in our Savior's name.